It's February 21st, 2022, and this is the Watson Weekly, your essential e-commerce digest. Today on our show, what if Amazon is the best positioned company to diversify sellers off Amazon? Shopify Q4 2021 earnings show growth, but there are still strategy concerns. Hasbro and Mattel's opposite economic views of toy industry future may have implications for other brands. 2021 PitchBook Venture Capital Report raises both optimism and concern. And finally, the Investor Minute, which contains five items this week from the world of venture capital, acquisitions, and IPOs. But first, in our shopping cart full of news. What if Amazon is the best positioned company to diversify sellers off Amazon? Follow me here for a second. The Amazon rumor mill has been going into overdrive recently with regards to whether or not Amazon will launch its own e-commerce platform. You can find evidence hidden in the past couple of years that Amazon indeed regrets ceding the e-commerce platform market to Shopify, even though its own e-commerce platform wasn't that successful to begin with, and now Shopify has its own growing flywheel of support behind it. There is evidence that Amazon could make a dent in this market, however, particularly if you notice that there doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Here are a few points. First, who knows Amazon sellers better than Amazon itself? It has more data about its sellers than anyone. They have over 9 million sellers globally on the platform, whereas estimates put the number of Shopify websites in the 3 million range. This means there's a big enough pie for both companies. You can also pretty much guess that it has an internal index of the top 1,000 brands globally and pricing up to the minute. Given these numbers, I would expect Amazon to go after the lowest part of the market even below the typical Shopify seller. There are just so many marketplace sellers that even today don't want to be bothered with multi-channel digital marketing, even though marketing is increasingly crucial on Amazon too. Second, Amazon's display advertising business has been moving in the direction of allowing sellers to advertise not only on non-Amazon websites, but also advertising non-Amazon properties, namely their own direct-to-consumer sites. Third, Amazon's multi-channel fulfillment, or MCF, has been quietly signing up partnerships with e-commerce platforms such as BigCommerce. But likely those partnerships are not enough on their own to drive the necessary volume through their facilities. Amazon tends to like to control its own volume, fueled by its own flywheel, rather than rely on things like sales teams and extensive marketing. Fourth, Amazon recently doubled its fulfillment capacity in the last two years. However, Amazon's own business did not double in that same time frame. It's clear to me that the purpose of this capacity is for third parties, not for Amazon itself. And since direct-to-consumer is growing faster than Amazon, it would make sense this is where the capacity is aimed. Most businesses need to be on Amazon, and it's a significant channel. This means imagery, video, and content need to be optimized, all things that need to also be on a brand's website. Imagine for a moment if all your A-plus content was also on your own store too. And Amazon had the lowest fulfillment prices in the industry to fulfill multiple channels without Amazon branding? Amazon seems to have abandoned its previous one-vendor initiative from years ago to combine its first-party and third-party tool sets, but what if Amazon resurrected that and the hub is instead not Amazon itself, but a true multi-channel store that supports both retail and direct-to-consumer? And finally, what do you need to be successful in e-commerce? Advertising, payments, and supply chain. Who has the largest of all these elements in one place? Amazon. Its biggest gap is somewhat actually simple. Tools to help you present your brand. 
But then again, Amazon did acquire Purpool and Cells in the last two years. Sounds like something to keep an eye on. Our second story. Shopify Q4 2021 earnings shows growth, but still strategy concerns. Don't get me wrong. Shopify is an amazing company and solution, but strategically, there are a few elements that there that need some help. First, the company has some revenue headwinds in 2022 related to COVID annualizing and developer revenue changes, meaning their $1 million credit also annualizing. Second, it could just be me, but I seriously have trouble consistently following Toby's train of thought sometimes. My friend had a great analogy. He's like this Uber architect refactoring Shopify as if it were a giant code base. Unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily lead to the world's best operator. Third, in Q4, Shopify lost $500 million on its investments, likely globally in a firm, as those stocks declined in the last year somewhat. Perhaps the company should stop playing the stock market and spin out its investments into a separate fund or something. Seems like that would make sense. Now on to one of my favorite topics that analysts didn't seem to want to let go of in the call, Shopify's fulfillment network. There is almost too much awkward conversation here, particularly for someone like me who spends a lot of time watching supply chain. I heard the word prototype about 10 times in this earnings call after not hearing it at all in the last few years. Apparently, the Shopify sales team has been selling prototypes to its merchants. Who knew? Perhaps it would have been nice to know this if you were a merchant who onboarded to the solution. I also think it's notable that CEO Toby Lutko stays away from fulfillment network questions and company president Harley answers them, although not very well at all in my point of view, except to repeat the mission, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with the mission. The challenge here is the mission is not the problem. The problem is the strategy and the execution. The only details we got about Shopify's fulfillment plans actually came from the CFO. And it's notable that it took her about five seconds to make the statement that Shopify would operate fewer and bigger facilities as the backbone of its network and partner for the middle and last miles of the network. Would that have been so difficult for Toby or Harley to say? Is the Shopify CEO Amy Shapiro also the company's chief supply chain officer? Moving on to Shop Pay for a moment, I did notice that each quarter that passes, it becomes more and more obvious that Shop Pay is the real growth engine of the company, although this revenue is lower margin than its subscription revenue. All in all, I don't see any material weaknesses in Shopify's approach in the e-commerce platform market in the short to medium term despite wanting to see the company take a different approach to fulfillment. If there are any risks, there are only long-term ones that Shopify's products become too complex and cumbersome for entrepreneurs that are starting out. Let me be clear, the narrative that Shopify and DTC are finished is incredibly short-sighted and completely overplayed in the media and analysts. That still doesn't mean, however, that Shopify doesn't have a lot of work ahead of it. Our third story, Hasbro and Mattel's opposite economic views of toys industry future may have implications for other brands. A recent CNBC report calls out differences between the major toy industry players, but it's also reflective of two other major viewpoints I'm hearing from brands that I'm in discussions with. To be clear, the backdrop of the entire conversation is about the economic uncertainty and the effects of inflation on consumer spending. On one side, you have Mattel with a very positive view. The company feels that consumers will continue to accept price increases and will buy at similar rate as during the pandemic. On the other hand, you have Hasbro, which has taken a slightly more negative outlook. As travel and other expenses increase, Hasbro is forecasting consumer spending on toys to decline. In particular, Hasbro believes that we're entering a period of uncertainty due to bumpiness in return from COVID, potential looming war with Russia, and the impact of inflation. 
What happens next is obviously the biggest question on investor and CEO minds this year. Here are a couple of things I would be thinking about. First, is there still supply chain exposure? While it looks like COVID is going away, there are still most certainly new variants will happen and will affect different parts of the world in different ways. Second, consumers spent a lot in 2021 and may not have the reserves to continue spending the same way into 2022. And in particular, third, material costs keep rising higher than expected. Whether or not your consumers will be able to absorb higher prices will largely depend on how much their lifestyles require your products. Different categories have more elastic demand in the face of rising consumer prices. And our last story. 2021 PitchBook Venture Capital Report raises both optimism and concern. I recently saw that PitchBook released its excellent recap of venture capital activity in 2021. In summary, the good news is that 2021 was the largest venture capital-based IPO market on record. The bad news is that the aftermarket performance of those IPOs was worse than the performance of the S&P 500. To me, this means trouble ahead for valuations, although with the number of funds that still have capital to deploy, I don't expect that startups will notice anything different until they approach a liquidity event. Let's get into it. First, the average venture-backed IPO valuation was approximately $2.2 billion, but as I mentioned earlier, these listings underperformed the market after IPO. The reason is that many of these listings were all overvalued to begin with. GMV is not a valuation metric, people. Second, on the other hand, venture capital-backed mergers and acquisitions remained high. The average venture-backed exit was $278 million, which is driven only by the top quartile of deals. Like any VC business, if you miss the grand slam home runs, your investment returns are terrible. Third, in addition to tracking the end of the line, meaning acquisitions and IPOs, also like tracking the beginning or seed stage valuations. Average enterprise seed stage valuations were in the $14 million range, about 10% higher than the previous year. Consumer technology seed valuations were in the $12.4 million range, about a third higher than 2020. To bring this discussion home, here are other few key points. What do startups and CEOs care about most? Two things. Number one is, can I somewhat easily raise my next round? The answer is probably yes, because there are a lot of funds raised that need to be deployed. Second, what value can I expect from my startup when I plan to exit? Seems like these are all over the map, and right now acquisition valuations are looking better than IPO valuations, primarily because we're still in a supply-constrained talent market out there. It's that time, friends, for our Investor Minute. We have five items on the menu today. First, Chanable, which is an e-commerce feed management provider, has secured over $62 million in a Series B funding. Feed management is not just a big topic for venture capital, but also private equity. You would think this trend would slow down at some point, but it's definitely not. Second, premium beauty brand Underlining raises $6 million seed round led by Nordic Eye Venture Capital. Obviously, new DTC brands are still being minted every day. Underlining's website approach is interesting also. It doesn't have a primary brand site, really, but instead micro Shopify stores for each product line. I wonder if that itself will become a bigger trend. Third, fast-growing live stream shopping platform Whatnot acquires Pastel Labs and hires a VP of engineering. In the live stream arena, Whatnot has found a nice and differentiated space in the sector, primarily with a focus on collectibles with proven audiences. My friend Victor says they sound somewhat like the Etsy of live stream commerce, which I agree with. Fourth, Austin-based company Cart.com raised $240 million in equity and debt funding for its end-to-end e-commerce platform. 
The company is interesting because it's partnered with at least one aggregator called e-commerce brands as a go-to-market strategy. And finally, freight forwarding firm Flexport raises nearly $1 billion in funding and adds Shopify and Michael Dell as investors. Flexport is a monster in the space. The interesting piece here is that Shopify is now on the cap table. This is yet another way they are trying to stay ahead of what Amazon is doing in the space with its own global logistics offering. That's all for this week. Till next time, Watsonians. Hi, I'm Rick Watson, CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting and host of the Watson Weekly Podcast, your essential e-commerce digest. Our show is produced by Citizen Racecar. Alex Brower is the producer and also wrote our theme music. The executive producer is David Hoffman. To hear new episodes of the show every Monday morning, subscribe now at rmwcommerce.com slash Watson Weekly and wherever you get your podcasts.